Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 135 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Today we're talking about keeping real food flavorful and the concept of bitter, salty, spicy, sweet. But first, we're coming off a pretty epic weekend between our Food as Medicine at the Farm event that we hosted at Eden East this past Thursday. Um, it was totally pure magic and amazing. It was amazing. And then, yes. <laughs> Um, And then Paleo Effects, which was just so, so much fun, so much to unpack from your panels and workshop and also just all the fun events and meeting people and trying expo foods and all the things. Um, So we had a blast meeting a lot of you listeners, and we're really glad that you come up to us, especially when we're practicing Allie fully virtual me more and more virtual. It's nice to like get a hug in 3D and hear your stories about how you're using food as medicine to empower yourself. Um, So first we'll do a little recap and then we'll get into today's fun episode. I can't agree enough. It literally warms my heart. Uh, So anytime you guys see me anywhere, always, always come say hello. This is why I do what I do. And I'm so passionate about sharing the messaging and it's so such positive feedback to know that someone's heard it. <laughs> so, you know, here I am sitting in my bedroom disseminating all this content and it's awesome having people come up and say hello and, you know, that XYZ episode has changed the way that they look at their keto or that they've made a shift or started a supplement formula for my line and now they've weaned off their antidepressant or they've gotten off their NSAIDs with use of super turmeric and never feel intimidated if you see me. And, and it really makes me feel like, oh my gosh, because we had one book signing fail <laughs> <laughs> during the Paleo Effects conference, which a lot of it had to do with lack of signage. But um, as we spoke about with Diane Sanfilippo, one book signing I had on Saturday, which was positioned between my two panels, wasn't really advertised. And so I sat at a table next to Sunlight and Saunas for an hour and only two people came and said hi to me. And so that's that slice of humble pie that balances out ego. Um, but if any of you had seen me and had come up, it would have totally made my day. And luckily that was positioned uh, opposed to Sunday's book signing by the Barnes & Noble bookshop after my workshop. And we had a nonstop line of people waiting to speak to me. So luckily I ended the weekend strong with that. Otherwise I think I would feel a little bit deflated for certain. Yes. We were told by the bookstore also that your book was, if not the top seller amongst the top sellers, and we sold out and had to resell them books twice. So, Hey, I think that made up for it. And then some. That's awesome. Yeah. Very incredible and and humbling in the other way for sure. It's so awesome to hear you guys getting outcomes from my work. So let's unpack first, Becky, the food is medicine at the farm event. And I know that we gave you guys anticipation in last episode about what was coming, but the space itself is so much magic. If you guys want to go check it out, 
I have created a highlight in my Instagram. So go on over to Instagram, Allie Miller RD, click the highlight called Fam at the Farm, and you can see the space. You can hear the bluegrass band. They were so incredible. There were chickens. Uh, Bonafide Provisions showed up with a, a strong crew doing their bone brothery, and we had heard rave reviews both on the cool it down broth with the turmeric, as well as the miso healthy broth. I think those were huge highlights. The anatomy of the garden station was absolutely gorgeous using edible flowers. Um, I don't even know. I know there were nasturgums and I think it was drag, something with the word dragon, that like tall, long snapdragon. Yeah. Snapdragons. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So much color. And we even incorporated, uh, lamb's quarters as a superfood green in amongst the arugula and the rainbow chard. So we had little chalkboards set up from root, which we had little julienne sliced uh, beets. And and then we had uh, spring onions as our other root. Then we had a chalkboard that identified the stems. So the rainbow chard stems got chopped up. Then we had leaves, which incorporated the different amounts of leafy greens I just mentioned. And then fruit, which was the flower, you know, any botanically flowering food would be classified as a fruit. So it was gorgeous. And then we had salad dressings that were made from Texas Hill Country olive oil. And uh, we had Jess from Harper and Soul doing uh, her nut blends and using that as a topping. It was, it was incredible. We got really good reviews on the food and I had multiple people come up to me and say that we undercharged Becky. So we have to be mindful of that next time around. (laughs) <laughs> you guys are also asking if we're going to do it before KetoCon, which I think the answer is probably not. It's a no, lot of work not yet. These, yeah. like, weddings, essentially. <laughs> yes, but we will do it again. So stay tuned for 2020. And um, a lot of people drove 10 plus hours to get there. Some people actually arranged a weekend to Austin as a trip and flew in just for our event. So that was also really incredible to see some super fans and highly devoted podcast listeners. And I heard from all of them that made a long trek that it was worth it. Uh, let's highlight the other two stations before we move on to Paleo X, Becky. How about yes. some talk about uh, the fermentation station? Because that was your first time meeting Ryan, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, he was awesome. He made quite the impression, especially on our panel, because I didn't get to talk to and hang at the station very long. But um, he had my husband tasting like all of his kimchi and walking through the entire um, process before the event. And then he just held it down, man. <laughs> I felt he like did. I didn't need to even go over and, and offer any assistance. Um, but he was tasting some of his um, ferments, um, kimchi that had been made with Redmond Real Salt, who was the sponsor for that yeah. station, um, as well as the kimchi brine. He was giving out little shots of of the actual kimchi yeah. Juice and brine, and talking about all of the vast benefits on the microbiome. Um, and then he was quite a highlight and quite a character on our panel, like I said, as well. Very, very passionate about, you know, getting back to your roots, getting into the dirt, and getting in touch with how your food is grown. Um, so yeah, I, and, I and love meeting long, him. Yes. Absolutely. And along that vein, that's a big element of this event is really empowering you listeners that if we're using food as medicine, that means that there is some calling of urgency for me and should be to all of us to maintain preservation of accessibility to real food and quality sourced food and heirloom varietals. So I spoke a lot in my opening notes 
on the anatomy of the garden and the connection of how food grows, thinking of like the root system of a plant, right? The way that a plant puts its roots into the ground is going to have this synergistic relationship with the soil. So the roots break up the soil, they pull nutritional matter, mineralization, they in- interact with the microorganisms of the soil, right? We know that compost is viable living microorganism activity. And so I think of really our intestines as being like a root system of a plant turned inside out. So that three to five pounds of gut bacteria that we have living in our body working for us in a synergy, right? A symbiotic environment or against us in a dysbiotic environment, very connected to that element of how important quality soil is. And in a conventional farming model or even large ag organic, we're using soil merely as just an anchor to hold the root in place, not as a nutritional active relationship. And that will have a huge impact on the nutrient density of the plant. So, you know, these small scale farms where they're doing crop rotation and complementary planting are going to be providing us the best form of food as medicine. And the best way to support that viability is beyond growing your own in the best capacity you can, voting with your dollar and shopping at your local farmer's market. So that was a big kind of passion point that I made at this event as well and hosting it at an urban farm, working to eradicate food deserts and, you know, make local food prevalent as we move forward with continued technology advancements and industrialized society. Yes. I was thinking a lot about that point this morning because of course I missed the farmer's market with all of the events yeah. of the weekend and went to Whole Foods and I was like, mm, not as good. <laughs> no, never is. But, never is. You know, the best we yes. can. <laughs> yes. And then our last station that we had was the anatomy of the garden and that was sponsored by Further Food. It was so fun to meet Ashley in person. We've spoke about her a couple times and you know, every time that we do a sponsored podcast by Further Food, we, we can't not mention how sweet she is <laughs> and the engagement with them as a company and being all female owned. And um, she really held it down the whole weekend at PaleoFX as well. But that booth, we made herbal syrups with CBD honey and we made first a decoction. So what you do is you boil herbal matter. So there was a blend of either her turmeric tonic with ashwagandha and holy basil. That was the adaptogen called I Am Resilient. That was that blend. And then we had another one using her mindful matcha. Or no, I'm I'm flipping it, aren't I? The mindful matcha had the ashwagandha and Mm -hmm. the holy basil. And then the turmeric tonic. So that was called actually I Am Mellow. And then the turmeric tonic, the turmeric tonic was used with the I am mellow, excuse me, the nervine approach, which was the valerian and the lemon balm. So I am mellow had the herbal blend of turmeric tonic, valerian and lemon balm. And then the I am resilient was the matcha because it has the caffeine in it, right? So you get the L-theanine in there and that had the ashwagandha and holy basil. And so basically we boiled both of those, allowed the water to reduce and the plant matter to be extracted with that slow simmer. You strain that with like a nut milk bag and then you take that liquid that's called a decoction and you blend that on slow, low heat with CBD infused honey and you make herbal medicine magic. It was pretty awesome doing that too. 
Yes. And I think our participants really love being able to take something away that they could utilize, you know, all weekend long during their travel. Always good to have those adaptogens and nervings on hand for when you need them and, you know, aren't sleeping in your own bed or eating regular meals, et cetera, and are just tired. We probably both need some more of that today. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we can use all of those things. Yeah. It's like five lectures, five lectures in one weekend is probably uh-huh. why my voice is a little off. Yeah. However, yeah. it should sound also very clear because I'm coming at you with my new Yeti microphone, feeling all sound professional over here where I'm listening to my voice for the first time. It's a little bit creepy, but I'm doing it all for you guys. <laughs> totally creepy. Shout out to Brady Miller for <laughs> getting our tech. Yes. Being our tech podcast and producer and all the yes. things he does. <laughs> so let's unpack a little bit of paleo FX. So we opened with a VIP party for speakers only on Friday evening because the food is medicine at the farm was Thursday. We were burned out on Friday. So we went to a late brunch We hung out at a pool with Stella and just kind of unpacked emotional, mental reset. And then that evening, Becky was my date for the Paleo Effects VIP speakers party, which was so fun because I remember last year really just kind of entering into the space. And I think at that time I had like five to 6,000 Instagram followers and it was before the anti-anxiety diet book had been published, right? That just came out in September. So now coming in, I was a little bit more of a player, but still being socially anxious <laughs> somewhat <laughs> and, and awkward. Um, Becky and I did some some successful navigation though. We, we I was actually sitting back to back with Ben Greenfield. So we were rubbing shoulders the whole time. And that was funny banter. And um, who knows if he'll remember me next year? Probably not, but that's okay. And then we also ran into Dave Asprey, who was wearing, what are those shoes called, Becky? The Vibrams or Vibrams, the toe shoes, you guys, that look like you're wearing shoes. Yeah, it's like you're wearing a glove on your feet. And he was hilarious. He like went into this whole thing about how there were stones on his Vibrams and they were Valentino Vibrams and they were designed like to have Aztec crystals that pointed toward the sun or some BS. And it was pretty hilarious, actually. <laughs> I think you kind of bought in for a second. And then I looked at him and I was like, with like, mermaid tears too. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're messing with me, but he was hilarious and super down to earth. We were chiming yeah. on supplements and um, favorite yeah, adaptogenic formulas and nootropics. Yes. And I got a picture foot to foot with him wearing my Texas cowboy boots with his Vibrams or whatever. So that was a pretty funny dichotomy. And then we got to connect with uh, Dr. Ann Shippey, who's going to be on the podcast in a month or so, talking all about her background um, in use as a functional medicine doctor with mold eradication. And then we got to see some favorites, uh, the team at Dry Farm Wines, which they were also at our event. Don't want to miss that shout out. And obviously that was a highlight for sure. But uh, getting to see a larger amount of their team at that event and then uh, seeing Kevin, um, who does the Feed a Brain book, uh, working with traumatic brain injury and Dr. Anna Kabeka we ran into, who's been on the podcast as well. And I'm sure more to mention. But let's talk about the panels, Becky, maybe yes. a little bit. Yeah. So you and were, yeah. You were on a panel on Saturday, uh Saturday morning on raising Neanderthal children. So let's talk about that one first. It was kind of getting back to the basics of how do we raise, you know, paleo children? How do we um 
take out the screen time and all of this like technology that is getting to our kiddos. Um, and I think screen time was like a big trend of questions for that panel. Yeah. Dr. Party, who we will hopefully have on um, in a future episode, a neuroscientist that does a lot of work also on, you know, brain chemistry and whatnot. It was interesting to connect with him as I think in one of my answers, I talked about the influx of dopamine with blue light. And I also emphasized beyond, you know, the impact on a neurotransmitter level and screen time for children. We also want to watch physiologically where they're, how that's impacting their bodies with the EMF. And so that's something I don't know if I've mentioned on the podcast. So I want to share that perspective with you guys as listeners. It's something I'm very mindful about with Stella. We really try to keep screen time on our projected TV, you know, so that she's not holding a device that is going to give off any form of radiation. And also, um, especially because a lot of kids put that like on their bellies, which can interfere with their intestinal integrity as well as their reproductive organs. And that makes me really concerned when we're looking at the huge influx of infertility and, uh, you know, the, the imbalance and distress on our endocrine system in general. Yeah, so that, that was, was a trend a point. Um, and we both have talked about using our Hara pads to block because we constantly have laptops around, but really this is true. Point. Yeah. And then um, another thing that came up, of course, a lot of diet questions. I think that an overall trend and understanding from all panel participants, which another member there, uh, Wellness Mama, Katie uh, with Wellness Mama was there. And that was cool seeing her because I've known of her, you know, for the past decade and have used her blog as a resource um, many times. And um, a lot of other people on the panel were talking about, along with me on perspective of structure, empowerment, and autonomy, right? So as we've talked about with like uh, being a taste adventurer episode, I lead Stella with questions like, what would you like for your protein? Would you like salmon or would you like grass-fed beef burger? And then what would you like as your fruit? Would you like raspberries or sliced up peaches? You know, and so we're guided decision-making process, but allowing them that autonomy so that when they get their lunchbox, when they eat their dinner, they had choice in the matter. And that's always going to create a healthier relationship and, um, educating them, taking that a step further (laughs) and empowering them with the why behind it, I think is also super important. Yes. And then you had a great zinger about gut integrity and, um, speaking to leaky gut and early introduction of foods, which I thought was awesome. Yeah. Someone in the audience had asked about, uh, you know, the concern about not bringing gluten into the diet because could that create more of an influence on the allergy response? And yes, there are a lot of studies that look at IgE mediated reactivity being potentially exacerbated with lack of exposure all of these studies tend to look at nuts and peanuts, um, which are more of the anaphylactic, hyperreactive response of the body. And so that was my point. Um, a couple of the people on the panel were agreeing that, yeah, you know, you should allow food freedom to allow gluten exposure before age two. And I just very strongly beg to differ. When I think we're using a misnomer when we're calling it a gluten allergy, first off, most people that have gluten intolerance are having an inflammatory response. And we all, if we know medical literature on zonulin and the influence of gliadin impacting the gut barrier, the gut blood barrier, right? Remember, 
when you consume gluten that interferes with the gatekeeper of your gut integrity. So gluten in all bodies, regardless of if you have an inflammatory response, regardless of if you have the tissue transaminase gluten response, right, the TTG marker, or the anti-gliadin factors in your bloodstream as an immune response, all people are going to have leaky gut mediation driven by zonulin interference with the barrier. And my point was that it takes two years, the first two years of life for the gut integrity to be fully sealed. So, you know, I don't see a cost to benefit of introducing a particle that is going to interfere with integrity or gut lining formation in tiny chance of allergy because gluten is not a high allergenic food. Yes. And I'll make sure I link to our episodes on nourishing your toddler. There's a couple that speak to that point. Um, yeah, for sure. Cause we've got lots of resources, you know, as Stella's growing up and finding more autonomy with food, we're kind of following her journey as well. Totally. And it was fun, you know, just sharing antidotes with Stella. And I know I've sh- I share them all the time on the podcast, but one new one that we haven't mentioned yet that Becky saw, so I can have a vouch, uh, Wednesday night when she came in before the event, uh, Stella, Stella's really into dinosaurs now. And so I told her to take like a T-Rex bite of her salad, I think it was. And um, then she was like, okay, mama, she ate the salad and she's like, I'm all done. And then I was like, but how about you take one more bite or two more bites of your steak? And then what did she say, Becky? (laughs) She's like, okay, I'll have a T-Rex bite of that protein. (laughs) Yeah. She identified it as protein. And it wasn't just any steak, Allie. It was the A5 Wagyu from Crowd Cow. So we didn't didn't want to waste a a single bite of that. It was the bomb. We'll talk about that more because Crow Cow is today's uh, sponsor. So super awesome. But yeah, I thought it was hilarious that she looked at me and she's like, okay, mama, I'll eat more steak because that's my protein. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. yeah. so, so I was smart. also on another panel um, and I know we have other things to talk about beyond unpacking. So I'll kind of cruise through this one because we always talk about keto and we've talked about intermittent fasting and there is coming soon, I think in two episodes, a, what I'm calling nerdy episode going into fasting mechanisms, including things like mTOR and all of the things. But it was awesome to be on a panel again, as an expert in this world, um, especially with the high accolade of speakers that were at paleo and many of them delving into, you know, the keto mindset or keto mentality. So in fact, I saw Sean Baker, Dr. Sean Baker on the side who, uh, he nodded off after someone made an (laughs) anti-carnivore. So, you know, um, but I think Sean was on the great diet debate, which would have been really awesome to see. I think we should download that because they had just wildly opposing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So ours was not that, uh, I, I think dynamic in the sense where most people on stage, maybe aside from Nora, um, and I don't remember how you pronounce her last name, but, um, you know, spoke on ketosis as a metabolic mm-hmm. state. So Mark Sisson was on there, which was awesome to engage with him. Um, Louis from keto gains was on there again. And, you know, a lot of us were in that mindset. Oh, and, and I got to meet, um, Sean Wells, um, who's also a registered dietitian. So it was really cool to meet him too. And, um, you know, ketosis as a metabolic state and talking about the mechanisms, uh, two or three people on the panel acknowledged the influence on GABA, which was cool. That was one of my kind of opening statements of why I keto, right. For mood stability. And that's why I use keto as the foundation of the anti-anxiety diet. And then I think another big trend on the macro impact was, which I know uh, Louis is all about, is about um, 
not chasing fat, right? So being mindful on your body's ability to use fat as fuel, not going for that perfect pie chart of macros because, you know, fat is an abundant fuel in most of the bodies that are trying to keto for weight loss, of course. And then, you know, getting ample protein, not protein restricting and choosing quality snout to tail selections within your protein choices. Yes. And then there was a lot of talk on priority of results and also just listening to your body versus the chasing of ketone levels or doing harder, faster, further, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that it was a really great perspective. Um, We got a lot of people, you know, coming up to me after that panel and asking a bunch of deeper questions. And then we closed the weekend with me leading a workshop on Sunday on the ketogenic diet with functional medicine approaches to managing hormones, thyroid, and adrenals. And that pretty much pulled a lot of the concepts that I use in my 12-week virtual food as medicine ketosis program. You know, we emphasized how the ketogenic diet is a hormetic stressor. So we have to acknowledge what other stressors we're taking on and the downstream impact on the adrenals and the thyroid. But I made very clear that it's important to acknowledge when you hear things about keto not working for hypothyroid or so forth, the main arguments are usually on the fact that the thyroid requires glucose for optimal function or that your reverse T3 may go up with the ketogenic diet. And my very clear points on that are that when you are in a state of keto, you're not running exclusively on ketones. You also have glucose levels. So they may lower, they may go from a range of 60 to mid um, 90s or mid 80s even for that fact, which is phenomenal. That's going to be less glycation in the body, less aging processes, less oxidative stress for the body, but you don't zero out. There's always levels of glucose for the tissues that need that at demand. And then on the other vein, when we see markers like reverse T3 or other markers working against our metabolism, that's often seen with chronic calorie restriction or maybe even time-restricted eating, but not specific to carb restriction. Yeah, I thought that was a great point. And of course, we also talked about leptin and carb cycling, which I think was a unique perspective from some of the other lectures. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) All right. So let's unpack. What what are we doing today, girl? What are we talking about? Today, we are talking all about uh, this concept of balancing flavor. And this ties really well into, as Ali mentioned, at the Food as Medicine at the Farm event, we had that anatomy of the garden and real food flavor station, uh, which I think just ties in so beautifully. So we talked about this back in episode 103, and we covered... F-A-S-S or FAS, which is going to be fat, acid, salt, and sweet. But there's this other concept called BZ or B-S-S-S. <laughs> it's not BZ with a B like a B would make, which is what it is. Bzz. Bzz. Yeah, I don't know. That's hard to, <laughs> that's hard to say. <laughs> um, that we didn't get to cover in much detail. So um, first, let's do a quick refresher on fast because the, the concepts are really intertwined, if you will. We're going to talk acid totally. and salt and sweet in all of them and about fat. But let's do a quick refresh again. That's episode 103. If this speaks to you, you can go back and listen to that one. Uh, but what is fast? Yeah, so this comes from my education at Bestier. We worked a lot with Rebecca Katz, 
and um, she's just phenomenal. We give her a, a little bit more of a bio shout out in episode 103. So you can go listen to that to learn more about what she does. But she has what she calls the FAST method. And she talks about how fats are the carriers of flavor. In fact, she calls them tiny magic carpets, which is like the cutest thing ever. (laughs) Uh, She calls acids the activators of flavors and states that they will vacuum (laughs) or suck up different, you know, even small, delicate flavor profiles so that they can be expressed. So acids are the activators. Salt is the chemical bridge of flavor. So it connects the dots and we talked about that, how if things taste too um, like staccato, like a, a salsa, let's say, where you taste first the jalapeno right away, and then you taste that chopped up red pepper, and then you end with the tomato, adding salt is going to create more of a round bridging of those flavors. So you taste them all at a similar time. And then sweet is also a roundness to create harmony within the palate. So we provided a table in that episode. And uh, also, if you go back through our Instagram, if you look around that time of episode 103, that was our screenshot there. But you know, fats can range anywhere from extra virgin olive oil. Don't forget about olive oil, you ketoers, right? They don't always have to be grass-fed butter, ghee, coconut oil, which are three of my definite favorite fats to use in the household, and tallow and lard, right? But we also like to use liquid oils from monounsaturated fats like olive oil and then, you know, other clean oils like avocado oil is a great option, walnut oil. We used sesame oil when we sauteed mushrooms for the bone brothery at our event. And we sauteed lion's mane and oyster mushrooms in a toasted sesame oil. It was phenomenal as a topping to put on the miso healthy broth. So fats can come from all of those sources as well as whole foods like nuts and seeds or olives themselves or avocado itself. Then in our acids, we're talking about citruses like lime juice, lemon juice, grapefruit, orange. We're talking about vinegars. So whether these are grape-derived vinegars like red wine vinegar, white wine vinegar, balsamic, champagne, or apple-derived like Bragg's Raw, apple cider vinegar, and so many other vinegars that are available from varied fruit forms in the fermentation process. We also can get acid direct from other uh citrus or I guess tropical, I should say, juices, like even using pineapple juice in a marinade or even wine can provide that acid bite. Yes. And, and how, about, how about salt? <laughs> you do salt, Becky. Salt. And we'll be covering this one again um, in some detail today, but um, we did speak in that episode 103 about the difference between iodized table salt and mineral rich salts like Redmond Real Salt, who was again, another event sponsor. Um, so salt can obviously come from sea salt, but it can also come from things like seaweed, fish sauce, tamari or gluten-free soy sauce. If you do soy, um, umeboshi plum vinegar, I know is, is something that we really enjoy and, um, something you used a bit of in the anti-anxiety diet cookbook. Um, so yes. I have to bust out my bottle of that for the, um, roasted Brussels sprouts in there. Um, miso paste is a great source as well as coconut aminos and even going to the extent of bacon and cured totally. meats and cheeses. Yes. And then sweet. And, you know, my philosophy again with real food keto and the ketogenic diet being a metabolic state, not a yes or no food list, 
I allow whole food sweeteners. And there's that episode back, I don't know, like, is it like 120 or something? And it's called Real Food real Sweeteners, food I think. Keto or Real Food Sweeteners? <laughs> yeah. In that, we go into deeper detail, but unsulfured molasses, organic grade B maple syrup dates, uh, date sugar, raw and filtered local honey, even rapadura or sucanat, which is the uh, more dried form of molasses, and then forms of fruit themselves, uh, caramelized onions, and even caramelized anything can provide that sweet flavor. And then coconut sugar and uh, coconut sap could fall into that world. But again, this sweetness um, can be titrated down as you break up with sugar. And that's why I don't put any of those non-caloric sweeteners in that bank because that's only going to mess with your hustle of changing your palate to be more savory. Sure. Um, And I think that was a big concept back to paleo effects that we kept turning over products and seeing stevia and monk fruit and all these things. Oh my gosh. Sorry. We take a really hard line. I don't think either of us even tasted any of them this time. No, I I won't. And (laughs) um, yeah, it's especially you have to be mindful with the word keto on it. It's like, I can't believe that they're they're taking nut butters, which are already keto and then adding non-caloric sweeteners to stamp the word keto on it. Keto does not equal chemical shitstorm, right? No, the addition okay. of, of stevia or whatever doesn't doesn't make it any more keto than it was before. <laughs> right, uh, right. Okay. Um, and yeah, this concept sparked something, guys. Head back to episode 103 and also check out the Optimal Eating Virtual class, which will dig deeper yes. into applying these concepts to things like salad dressings, marinades, basically every single dish under the sun and be a really good either entry point for someone just getting started on their food as medicine journey or someone who's not as comfortable in the kitchen Um, and a really good kind of reboot refresher. A lot of that stuff, even though it's an older program, is still really, really relevant. Absolutely. And just keeping you innovative and motivated, right? And, And that's what I love about, you know, connecting this whole story back to our food as medicine at the farm thing things like buying locally and using your CSA or community supported agriculture buy-ins and farm shares and whatnot, they keep you on your toes as far as your produce. You like get something and you're like, well, what is this? Well, you start with tasting it. Then you start with determining how it grew. Like, was it a root? Then you probably need to cook it a longer period of time. Is it a leaf? Maybe you braise it at the end. Um, But using that kind of anatomy, as well as a combination of ensuring that whatever you're creating in the kitchen has a good balance of fat, acid, salt, sweet. And then to come, what we're going to get into now, the BSSSS, is going to be a great... Yes. It's going to be a great way though, to make you feel like a culinary genius, you know, in the comfort of your own home. Yes. All right. So let's get into the new stuff and unpack this concept of B S S S S. Yeah. (laughs) Not BS. So (laughs) no, it's not BS. There's no BS about the biz. Um, so yeah, the approach, uh, refers to our four tastes. So we're talking about bitter, sweet, salty, and sour. And then there is umami recognizes the fifth taste. And some people, as I'll talk in a moment, recognize spicy as the fifth or sixth taste as well. Um, So we will add in another to our bis breakdown. Yes. (laughs) And really the key here is just like with FASS, balancing them to appropriately, um, you know, channel the flavors and, and not have any one flavor within that BSSS 
SS, however many S's um, come through too strong. So we'll be talking today about not only the mechanisms of these flavors and getting a little bit nerdy on taste. We got to get nerdy. Yeah. Taste receptive. We can't help it. Uh, But we'll also be talking about how to balance them out. Like if you put way too much vinegar in something, for example. So let's start, get the nerdy stuff out of the way and just cover the science of taste and how our taste buds actually work to taste these different flavors. Sure. So, you know, I've talked in uh, varied places about the influence and the importance of chewing our food, right? And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we actually have digestive enzymes in our saliva, right? And we secrete these enzymes even with that psychosomatic response, like thinking of Pavlov's dog, right? So digestive enzymes in our saliva start to dissolve our food and they start to create a bolus or like a a form, a, a lump of food from the very pieces that we're biting off of our fork. And that also washes over our papillae, which are these tiny thousands of bumps. And each of these tiny papilla or, or bumps have hundreds of taste buds on them. And the tongue is just covered again with thousands of these. So as the enzymes start to incorporate and, and kind of create the uh, delivery of the food over the papilla, that's when we start to experience the taste. And there are around 2,000 to 5,000 taste buds located on the back and the front of the tongue. That's where the majority are going to be. And then there's some that are distributed on the roof, some on the sides um, or uh, of the mouth and throat. Um, but each taste bud itself has about 50 to 100 taste receptor cells. So, so cool. And then, you know, you're tasting these different flavors in different areas of, of the tongue, which I'm sure listeners are kind of familiar with that. Um, but each of them, I remember the science classes, right. Where you like take the, the, like, (laughs) I don't remember what we dipped them in, but you know, like hold them to the right side or yeah. And you only taste, I think spicy is always like toward the back, but we're not experts on this guys. So (laughs) I'm not going into any brief, brief overview today. Um, so Talking about these um, five tastes or six tastes, if we're adding spicy on there, um, each one is going to serve a function. There's actually an evolutionary mechanism behind this and and the way that we taste these foods and crave these foods and, and kind of what these tastes mean to our body. So let's get into that. Sure. So, you know, the, the big thing, let's start with salt. So salt is of the tastes, the most necessary for survival, right? So we know, and and I talk a lot about the impact of electrolyte stability. So sodium, as Becky said, we don't want sodium chloride as a chemical created form of salt, right? Made in a lab and iodized. We do want to get our sodium chloride in the form of a whole food like sea salt. And that's why I love Redmond Real Salt because they actually are mining salt in caves in Utah that was stored from you know thousands of years ago. So not exposed to the current day toxins we see in our oceans if we're extracting you know today's sea salt per se. But salt is super important because it provides electrolyte stability and creates this homeostasis or balance in the body of fluid, um, ion, and, and water exchange essentially. And we know we have hormones in the body like aldosterone made by the adrenals that play an interchange with kidney function on how the kidneys reuptake 
water into the blood. And this is going to play a role with, uh, you know, edema or fluid retention in the body. It's also going to play a role with our diuresis or our release of fluid in the body. And then that can in turn interact with our digestive function, constipation and diarrhea. We can see impact on a cardiovascular level with arrhythmia and sodium being thrown off and so much more. Hyponatremia or low sodium status is a significant medical complication. Yes. And there was a big trend at PaleoFX too that we didn't mention. Um, a lot of electrolyte replenishment products out there and more and more, especially as people are going more keto and kind of that world in general, everyone's doing CrossFit or jujitsu and needs to replenish electrolytes. But we were really disappointed to see even like some of the cleaner ones out there are using sodium chloride versus real sea salt. Yes. So a blog is going to be coming in the near future where we're going to do a table of a couple common electrolyte formulas and then using a base of quality salt and real foods. So we often talk about half an avocado with the juice of half of a lime or lemon and um, half a teaspoon of salt. So we're going to give you the actual electrolyte breakdown of these things and a real food approach as well as some convenience options too. Yes. Giving myself some homework. (laughs) Yes. So going into sour, so sour is one that, um, you know, can be pleasant in small quantities, but in larger quantities can become quite unpleasant or repulsive even. And the sour taste itself can be a survival mechanism in the sense of if you think of like spoiled foods or something, if you say something soured, right? Soured milk or rotten meat or something like that. So it could be based on bacteria or microbiological impact, which created a unhealthy um, food itself. Uh, But sour generally is going to also signal acids in the body and create an acidic environment. And that itself can create tissue damage or be more inflammatory. Now, sour can also have benefits when we think of sour and and, and sour kind of bridges with bitter. It's a little bit difficult to distinguish the two. So we think of like sour more to be like pungent, um, like maybe a blue cheese or something like that. But then there's sour, like in the sense of a grapefruit, which is also bitter, right? Or a lemon, which is sour, but also bitter. Um, But we do know on a neurotransmitter level, interestingly enough, that sour foods increase levels of serotonin in the brain. So we have talked about like with the insomnia episode using sour cherry gelatin or um, things like dark chocolate. Um, We've talked about how that can be a mood booster. Again, dark chocolate I think of as more bitter, but either way that, that feedback to our central nervous system with sour and bitter can ramp up a mood stabilizing neurotransmitter, serotonin. So pretty cool. Yes. And then bitter, which you said has quite an overlap. Bitter, we generally think of as kind of negative as well, or we have to become more accustomed to it. Totally. And, you know, evolutionary wise, bitter alkaloids, right? Plant-based bitters were often poisonous. You know, we know today uh, because we have more advanced food science and what have you, that many bitter flavors because of that alkaloid presence may be very potent detoxifying compounds, may be very supportive um, on an antioxidant phytocompound level. So our palate, as we channel savory, as I like to say it, and we 
break up with processed industrialized food-like substances that creates that hyper palatable disconnect in brain and body. As we start to get more to natural foods, bitter is something that we have generally a greater threshold for, and that often tends to correlate with higher antioxidant intake. So we think of bitter foods uh, like dandelion greens, arugula, again, leafy greens aside from your iceberg lettuce, right? Or your like bland salad blend to get in things like radicchio, horseradish even could be in that bitter family. And then I mentioned, which is a little more welcomed, dark chocolate, right? Um, But these are things that tend to kind of bite in the back of the mouth and kind of like where the jaw meets. Often bitter is going to create a salivary release or surge of saliva, which also stimulates enzymes. And this is where bitters can be very beneficial for our liver and our gallbladder. So we can add bitters intentionally to drive more bile flow. That's going to help with sluggishness in the gallbladder. It's going to drive detoxification and going to help with nutrient absorption at mealtime and bowel formation. Yes. And I really love seeing the trend of more and more bitters, um, either as a uh, digestive bitter um, supplement or um, more and more bitters actually used in some of the craft cocktail bars. I think they have a really unique um, flavor. I've been to a, a bitters bar actually in New York that they had just an entire, like the whole bar was lined with different types of bitters. So I think we'll see that to continue to trend upward and people becoming more accepting of those flavors. Oh, and I know whether this is just a habit that I picked up from a good wine drinker in Napa or just intuition, probably not, but I, I often like will crave, you know, we're seeing a lot more like Aperol and, mm-hmm. and Campari, right? But I often like if I if I do wine tasting and I'm like, ugh, talk about a little bit of a sour stomach. What I want if I'm to have an alcohol beverage that evening and still feeling celebratory is like soda water and Campari, and it's like that mm-hmm. really nice like get the liver working. Yep. <laughs> Come on, liver. <laughs> um, and so it's an interesting connection for sure. Yeah, I love it. And then what about sweet? Let's talk about that guy. Sure. So for sweet, we're looking at again the connection of with a whole food approach, you know, not being fearful of whole food forms and also using sweet from things outside the box like caramelized onions. But sweet on the other end of evolution opposed to bitter was thought to be safe. You know, we think of like breast milk, we think of uh, that being high in, you know, polysaccharides or these longer chain carbohydrates. And these are an energy source for the body. And so there is that evolution that sweet is safe and something that the body should go towards. But we know that there can also be this disconnect of a taste of sweet and that throwing off um, the palate if it doesn't have a glucose response with it. So this is where I'm entering the world of non-caloric sweeteners like saccharin or sucralose or aspartame. And even beyond those, those of which are seen maybe more natural, quote unquote, right? Um, And so really watching out for those because those can do distress to your palate and they can throw a physiological distress to the body, creating a hypoglycemic blood sugar drop, right? Because we get an insulin response from that GLP receptor in our tongue. All those tiny little taste buds are responding with a physiological reaction to the the taste or the perception of sweet. Sure. And it's so much more kind of hyper activated or hyper responsive with those hyper sweet substances. Um, And then- Absolutely. Unpacking this nerdy history a little bit more, the fifth taste, which is Mommy was really brought to the table apparently around 1908. 
Yeah, I remember when I was working with Recipe for Success, with which is an organization that works with uh, under underprivileged uh, individuals in urban areas, and uh, teaching them about gardening and whatnot. We would teach them umami, and then they'd all go ooh poppy. <laughs> I love it. So I always remember that umami ooh poppy. Um, and so this is going to be the presence of glutamate essentially. And so we think of things like sun dried tomatoes. We think of mushrooms. Yes, very Japan. Um, history wise and I would say Asian flavor profile infused. And so this really kind of hit the American market when I think sushi got a big raise, don't you think, you know, and kind of these like Asian fusion restaurants and people eating things like miso and, um, shoyu and and these types of foods. So these are going to provide on a health level, um, amino acid boost. So L-glutamate can actually not only provide that pleasure response, uh, L-glutamate can convert to GABA in the brain. So it can have some, uh, you know, inhibitory mellow out impact, but it does encourage the intake of peptides and proteins. So also can support protein intake, aid with muscle and organ um, function, and can help with uh, enzyme activity throughout the body. Awesome. And then spicy taste, this isn't necessarily present in all cuisines across history, but we live in Texas. We like things a little spicy. Um, So this is where we see more like Asian flavor profiles again. So like Chinese and Indian cultural influences. Yeah. And you know, spicy is one of those that we also kind of think of like a I forget there's this show that Brady watches. I think it's called like hot sauce testimonials or something (laughs) where they do an interview and they go up on the capsaicin. So capsaicin is the chemical compound, right? That creates spice in the body. And um, they'll go up on like the like ghost chili, whatnot. And they ask these personal questions. So the interview like quote unquote heats up, but spicy foods do give us an endorphin rush. So there is a little bit of a neurochemical response there. And the capsaicin of the spicy food binds to a class of receptors in, in in the mouth called a vanilloid receptor, a VR1. And that creates this chemical response, which tells the body that it's thermically hot. So this is where Byron sweats <laughs> when he eats anything that has capsaicin in it. And he sweats a lot when he eats spicy food. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know if that's... <laughs> You always call it or what? You know, research project. Do do Koreans have more VR1 receptors in their mouth? That could be a genetic thing. They very well might. And um (laughs) he was sweating tasting the kimchi out at the farm and then like sweating more doing his camera work out in the sun. But we're in that season now where he's just a permanently it's hot. Sweaty human. Um, so yeah. before we go more in depth and in detail into um, kind of balancing all of these flavors and how they interplay, let's have a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, CrowdCow. Okay. So CrowdCow delivers the very best craft meat from farm to table. The coolest thing about working with CrowdCow and ordering from them is that you will get to know the breed the style of beef. You get to virtually meet the small independent rancher who produced the beef. And beyond beef, they have quality pastured chickens. They have had grass-fed lamb. I believe that's a seasonal option, but they have lamb as well as pork. So meeting the producer, again, goes back to this whole circle discussion from the beginning of my food is medicine at the farm to maintain that integrity of quality nutrient density. So meat is medicine too, you guys. And it's really important that you're sourcing and ensuring the diet of the animal and how that transpires to the end product. 
Yes. And I love that you can pick the exact cuts that you want and have those delivered to your door on your own schedule. So it's not a subscription service. It's not showing up when you're on vacation or you forgot about it, or you still got a freezer full of meat and you can choose from a variety of cuts. So everything from that amazing melt in your mouth, a five Wagyu that we mentioned to the ground beef, which I think I'm now converted and sold on (laughs) as well. I'm going to have to start um, using the crowd cow ground beef after having burgers with it this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to note, like Becky said, you can choose cuts from all ends of the spectrum, which also means big variety in cost. So whereas the A5 Wagyu is quite an indulgence, talk about umami. I mean, I think that having a couple ounces of that as even a condiment to your meal is pretty much life-changing. So as we go into, you know, maybe Mother's Day indulgence or Father's Day as that's coming not only a month after, really fun gift idea and um, even getting a meat share would be a cool thing. So you can go over to crowdcow.com backslash naturally nourished, like the name of the podcast, and you will get $25 off as well as free shipping. Again, that's crowdcow.com backslash naturally nourished. And you can get high quality beef in a sustainable way that will save you money and support small scale local ranchers, which means we're voting for high integrity and maintaining food as medicine in our meats. Love it. And looking forward to meeting their team at KetoCon, I think, right? Yeah, absolutely. That'll be a good time. Awesome. Um, So again, back to kind of the nerdy science, so much is still being discovered. Like we said, we're not taste scientists and experts, but um, so much more to unpack there. Let's just talk a little bit about um, each taste a little further in terms of foods that fall into these categories, what they contribute to dishes and how we balance flavor from a culinary perspective. Maybe if we've gone too far and and added too much of something, our dish is really coming across um, too bitter or too salty, et cetera. So let's start out with bitter. Love that. Yeah, because this is the application. So like we said, with fat, acid, salt, sweet, you do want to make sure that all four of those are present in every dish, right? Now with the bis approach, (laughs) you want to be mindful that you might choose four, not all five. And like we said, spicy and umami are kind of optional add-ons based on the profile of the dish. But bitter, sweet, and salty, I would say, are ones that should be present in all to some level and some level sour. And as we said, bitter and sour might have some overlap. So bitter, if something's too bitter, well, bitter is going to come from often your fresh herbs, right? So adding fresh herbs is a great way to ramp up your antioxidant status in a dish. Also, we know there's health properties to many herbs. We've talked about the immune elements of oregano, the microbiome support we get um, from those things as well, how rosemary can enhance your memory. But we think of fresh herbs, so even cilantro and how it can detoxify and chelate metals, parsley, garlic, dandelion, which I mentioned with all the world of the other bitter greens like radicchio and endive, and then cacao, uh, which is going to be in your dark chocolate. So if something's too bitter, let's use 100% cacao as an example. You're going to add a little bit of sweet, and this is what makes the variance of your percent of your chocolate bar. So we always say 80% or greater to get the health benefits of that cacao. That means that you're going to have 
more sugar in an 80% bar than you will in an 85 and so forth onwards to what we call like a hundo or a hundred percent pure. And, you know, as you again, adjust your palate, I know that I actually enjoy the flavor profile of a hundred percent cacao bar. However, usually I will have less than a square total of it because it is such a pungent dominant flavor. And I often like to instead add a little bit of like almond butter and salt to kind of balance it all out. And um, the almond butter to me, the grind your own almond butter does have a natural sweetness. So that's kind of what aids in that, that offset. Yes. I just picked up a couple of the um, Eating Evolved 100%. They've got a little bit of coconut flake on there. And I like to dip those in almond or peanut butter. But I was noticing I was going through the coconut sugar sweetened ones a little too fast. I'm just kind of resetting on my bitter palate right now. There you go. That's a great way to slow down, I think, yep. for sure, because yep. it, it's present. It is there. You know, you're not going to just eat through it. And I think that's so true with like milk chocolate. It's like it doesn't resonate, it doesn't have a dominant hit. Um, whereas sweet, so going into sweet, again, sweet is on both worlds of the FASS as well as this thing. And, um, you know, sweet is one that we can get, like I said, from our maple syrup, grade, grade B or robust maple syrup, raw and filtered honey, dates figs, varied forms of fruits and concentrate or dried forms of fruit. I do like to make sure they're organic so they don't have sulfites as a preservative, but a a mild amount of sweet will help to take out the bite of something like vinegar in a salad dressing, which is where I might do like a half cup olive oil, half cup balsamic, tablespoon mustard, and then still want like one teaspoon of maple just to kind of cut that. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you would use sour ingredients to take the sweet out of the uh, out of a food that's too sweetened. So that's going to brighten the dish from that over sugary taste. Um, and I like to use that like anytime I'm baking, I like to add it a little bit of acid for sure. sure. And then spicy, this is another one that, you know, if we add too much spice, it's like, oh, what do we do? How do we rescue that yeah. from burning everyone's mouths? Right. And I don't know if there's a direct mechanism. I didn't have time to research for today's episode as far as drinking milk, but I think of the idea of, you know, those tiny magic carpets or that pillowing of flavor of fat to coat and protect those taste receptors from that perceived, you know, endorphin and danger of the thermogenic response. So I think temperature cold is helpful actually, but then also fats. So going for, um, and traditionally we think of like spice and capsaicin and peppers and avocado tends to be paired with that, right? Or um, cream in like a curry, right? So maybe it's coconut cream, but we pair fat with spice often to mellow it out. So even something like a nut butter might work in a certain dish. But I think more traditionally, we're talking about like coconut milk, full full cream or heavy whipping cream, avocado, those work really beautifully. Or olive oil, fats as oils could work as well. And on our spicy choices, we're looking at things like the varied forms of tiny peppers out there from ghost chilies to jalapenos to cayenne and you name it. Um, even spice in the sense of like ginger um, and then the more mild players like chili powder and some would even call raw garlic spicy um, or um, even like raw red onion could also fit in that category. Awesome. And then what about salt? If we've added too much salt to a dish, how do we rescue that? So 
too much salt, right, you're not getting that chemical bridge of flavor. Now you're just getting that throat clearing <laughs> salt uh, from excess and maybe you didn't measure or you misread a teaspoon for tablespoon in your recipe. You can try to dilute um, by adding cooking liquid. Um, so you might add some wine to cut it. Um, you know, that's going to add a little bit also of that, like we talked about wine being potentially like sour or bitter. So that could be something you would try to go for. You could also try to add a little bit of sweet um, that may aid like a little bit of honey to kind of cut that. Um, but I usually would go for more of a, a bitter or a sour, maybe even a vinegar would kind of cut that saltiness. And you might need to though, like I said in the beginning, dilute or add more volume to your dish. Maybe you need to add three handfuls of greens to just distribute the flavor profile. And I think we already mentioned most of our favorite kinds of salt and going for those sea vegetables and then either a Himalayan salt or Celtic sea salt. And then even incorporating like chopped up celery in your dish can work in that sense. Yes. And then what about sour if something is too sour? Kind of similar to being too bitter, I would think, right? Absolutely, yes. So if it's tangy, and I guess that's how I would distinguish it, more of like a tang, Mm -hmm. um, like sour cream, uh, yogurt, uh, we can try to cut that with a little bit of sweet. Um, and so that'd be a little bit different, whereas bitter would go for more acid. Um, and you know, sour tends to be a little acidic. So that would be the the one way that I would kind of distinguish those two. And yeah, so sour could be some vinegars as well, like, like acid cider, apple cider vinegar. Uh, but I think more of like lemon, lime, and then like the, the creamed foods that are cultured tend to be more on the sour profile. Sure. And then is there such a thing as something being too umami? I know, right? I don't know. I don't know if it's <laughs> I think too much. It, I think it can be too salty, guess, but like yeah. umami, I, I'm, ooh, poppy. It can be too ooh, poppy. Um, <laughs> so this is usually right beyond the things we listed, like sun-dried tomatoes and mushrooms, miso, bone broth is also very umami. And cooking processes can make things more umami. So like one of the reasons why I'm converted forever to dry cow, dry, uh, to crowd cow, dry aged ground beef. I tried to mix up those words into some weird hybrid crowd cow, dry aged ground beef. I'm super addicted to because their ground beef being dry aged, that dry aging process actually creates more umami flavor profiles. So, you know, you don't have to add as much to your burger patties to really make them pop. So I think you could add a little bit of, I would go to brightness if it's too umami because I think of umami as being very savory, very rounded. So I'd probably go to acid or bitter to pick up an umami dish. Got it. Awesome. So somehow we've done it again. We're already in an hour. <laughs> we had more for you guys. Um, but I think, shall we save the workshop. workshopping? Or I think we should workshop one? it. Okay. Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. not make it as a third episode. <laughs> That's nope. true. You're right. Uh, I'm already bumping my, I already missed my chiropractor appointment. So we got this. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, we wanted to kind of unpack for you guys how to apply this. So you've heard it. Um, you know, you've had maybe hopefully some aha moments and this type of work with food is what really, I think, uh, keeps Becky and I so motivated as recipe developers. You know, I've been putting a lot of my time and energy creatively into the recipes that will be in the anti-anxiety diet book. Um, and you know, Becky puts out the majority of the blog post recipes that are coming up and we really do think through these processes when we're putting together a recipe and then even in our home, when we're just cooking for our our household, 
tasting things. And I think that that's a really important piece of the puzzle. You have to be an active taste explorer through your process in the kitchen. And then hopefully from some of the notes we talked in today's show, you understand what might be off and how you can you know, adjust things to work well. But we're also going to be sharing a lot of this as we launch our YouTube channel, which will be coming in the fall. So the Anti-Anxiety Diet book comes out in September, I believe, as well. And hopefully right on its heels will be the launch of the Naturally Nourished YouTube channel. I've already been starting to upload some of my like thoughts from Allie, uh, Instagram TV things up there. So go on over and subscribe now if you're thinking about it. But we're going to be doing some cleaning up. It has a lot of my old uh, TV segments on there. And we will be uploading a video actually up there as well from the Food is Medicine at the Farm, which will be a fun kind of like documentary interview series of the event and telling the story of everything, catching some parts of the panel and interviews and so forth. But uh, we're going to be putting out purposeful content starting in September. So that's accountability for both of us there. And um, we're super excited to share more of a video engagement approach to making food as medicine in your own kitchen. Yes. Super exciting things to come. Uh, But for today, let's start with salad dressings and marinades as I think this is an easy way to understand both the FASS and the BSSS (laughs) concept. Totally. And and maybe we'll just talk some of our favorite dishes that marry these flavors kind of in general. Yeah. And even like the recipes that were at the event, you know, because that's like a very clear, that's how we, again, develop these things. So for a salad dressing, I like to start with a one to one fat to acid ratio. I may even go, especially if we have the calorie use, a two to one fat to acid. If I was looking for a lower calorie approach, I may also go to a one to two. So somewhere within that ratio, but I would not hit a three to one in either in either end of the spectrum. And so it really depends on your calorie goals and also how uh, flavored your fat is. So for instance, I wouldn't do 100% of my fat in a recipe from toasted sesame oil. That's a really pungent flavor profile, but I might do untoasted sesame oil with a couple tablespoons of toasted sesame oil to comprise a total of a half cup of fat, right? And then, you know, if I'm talking in that sense of like an Asian profile of a dressing, taking that further, my acid would probably come from maybe a rice vinegar, like a rice wine vinegar. And that in itself is a very light acid. It doesn't have a lot of bite definitely less bitey than like a red wine vinegar or a balsamic. So also instead of just using that as my acid, I'd probably bring in a little bit more pungent acid, just like I do with the toasted sesame oil. So I would do a half cup minus two tablespoons, let's say of the rice wine vinegar. And then depending on the dish, maybe I'd add two tablespoons of lime juice, right? So that way you're getting this brightness of flavor and you're still getting that umami roasted toasted sesame oil in there. And then we're still going to have to add a couple things. So we got our fat, we got our acid. Now we didn't add any salt or sweet yet. So for salt with that flavor profile of toasted sesame and rice wine vinegar, I would probably keep it traditional and go for miso. Yeah. Um, you could also go for like a, um, Becky, what is the non-soy? Tell me, tell our listeners about the non-soy, yeah, the new one. uh, 
Yeah. What is it? It's not coconut aminos because I'm not a big fan of coconut aminos. I think it tastes sweet. Yeah. Um, so let's tell, talk about that product it, and get it, it up on our Amazon called No Soy. I'm forgetting the name, but it's a blend that Byron discovered. He made just this amazing Korean meal a few weeks back. Um, and it was just on the end cap of Whole Foods. I can picture the bottle, but I'm not going to run and get it for the sake of our episode integrity. Um, but I will make sure I link to it on our Amazon store. Um, I know it had um, a little bit of molasses in it and maybe even a little bit of date. So there was that sweetness, but it didn't come across sweet at all. And I don't know if there was any um, coconut derivative off the top of my head. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Okay. Well, it, it's really great though. I think it is called no soy as well. And and it's not that again, we're anti-sweet. It was just that that flavor profile was more complex. It had more of like a traditional like shoyu, which is like a traditional soy sauce um, flavor profile. So a little bit more robust. Whereas to me, the coconut aminos, which are the more known soy-free alternative, uh, those tend to be a little bit flat in my book. So I always have to kind of shake things up a little bit more. But anyway, so you could add miso to this dressing, or you could add this no soy, or you could also accommodate that with a pinch of quality salt. And then depending on, right, if you use the no soy or you use the coconut aminos, that might have enough sweet in it. Um, it also would depend on what type of miso, if it was a white miso or a red miso, how pungent that was. But you could, within that whole flavor profile, probably add, if you went with the lime, with the rice vinegar, maybe just a, a little teaspoon of robust maple syrup to kind of round that fully out. So that's an example of a salad dressing that would work really well with like cashews, um, maybe some uh, skirt steak on there, doing, and then maybe like some cabbage slaw, some sesame seeds, chopped up um, uh, snap peas work really nice on there. Cilantro. And it could even be used, yeah, fresh cilantro to get a little bit of that um, kick of the bitter in there. And you'd get the bitter from the cabbage too, of course. Right. Um, and so that would work really well. It's like a, like a Chinese chicken salad type thing, but I mentioned steak in my option and and that would be very balanced with all of our letters. Did we hit all the letters in that dish so far? I think we did. I think we did. Let's, um, you want to walk through a classic, like a balsamic vinaigrette, Becky? Um, and just for clarification, that, um, product is called Ocean's Halo No Soy Soy Sauce. Um, and it is, and does it have coconut? It what does it have coconut. in there? It's got um, molasses, sea salt, apple cider vinegar, lime juice. It has kelp and mushrooms. So that's what's getting you like a little bit more Ooh. of that umami flavor profile, but definitely a lot closer to soy sauce than the coconut aminos. Yeah. So we'll make sure to add that to the Amazon store. Awesome. And then for cool. a balsamic vinaigrette recipe, this would be kind of a more um, classical, I guess, if you will, approach. We could start off obviously with the acid or the, the bitter component as that balsamic vinegar. So you could do about half a cup of balsamic. And, and this is one, I think both of us, you know, make our dressings like eyeballing in a mason jar versus measuring exact portions. But if you dump that in there, you want to add about an equal amount of um, like a cold pressed olive oil or even avocado oil. So keeping it a little bit more neutral. And that would be, again, your one-to-one ratio of fat to acid with the balsamic and olive. And then um, I think I really like adding mustard um, as an emulsifier. So that's going to help to um, kind of bridge the fat and the acid and also add a really nice flavor profile. 
And then this is one where grade B maple syrup or honey could play really nicely about a tablespoon for an entire recipe, depending on your palate could even be less. Um, and then yeah. in our rustic balsamic vinaigrette that I know we've got up on the blog as well in, as in the naturally nourished cookbook, um, we add chopped fresh rosemary and fresh basil as an herbal component. And then you of course want to add salt to taste, um, as well as some black pepper. So you get the sour in that vinaigrette as an example, I think a little bit in the mustard, you get, of course, the sweet, the, the, the bitter from the, the, the vinegar would be the bitter and also balsamic has a little bit of sweetness, but the, the robust maple or honey would pull that out from there. And then the herbs just contribute further to that bitter kind of brightness. And then that's all stimulated with that acidity and the fat and it all kind of comes together. I think that's a very classic one. So if we're taking this idea of salad dressings, we could use the same delivery for marinades. And I honestly don't marinate meats that often because I think I do most things more whole, like bone and skin on, but I like to make like stir fry, you know, liquid blends that I might use to like deglaze a pan or to put over vegetables. And these often we're going to use more volume, right? Or like use the entire thing in the dish. So the big thing you would think about is likely reducing the fat profile because you probably used fat in the sauteing process of the stir fry, right? So then the, the marinade or the dressing would use more um, of a liquid and the liquid may not be pure acid. So the liquid could be from like bone broth or wine as the majority of it. And then use a little bit of acid from, like we said, the the citrus notes or the vinegars and so forth. Sure. And this is where more dilute acids like um, pineapple juice or orange juice might come more into play as well. I don't really do a lot of marinades to be honest either because a lot of my cooking is just like of the moment, I'm not going to have it sit in the fridge for an hour, right. um, but using a more dilute acid um, could kind of bridge that liquid need as well. But I think, yeah, bone broth is a great example. Yeah. The only time I really do a marinade is if I have a really tough cut of mm-hmm. meat, you know, and then I want that high acidity to be clear. You know, you want the acid to basically mechanically or enzymatically, not mechanically, to enzymatically digest your protein for you, right? So that's where pineapple with bromelain, you know, is a good go-to there. And you're not retaining a lot of sugar from that because it's going to cook off in the process. But doing that on like a, a really dense steak could work really nice. And then you throw that on the grill and that could really uh, take something that was a cheaper cut and make the mouth feel and make it tenderized a little bit better, which would be nice. You know what a cool trick is that I learned from my mother-in-law is that um, kiwi actually has a similar effect um, as pineapple in a marinade. So she'll use like a whole kiwi and we'll kind of mash that into if she's doing um, like beef bulgogi, which is a marinated grilled beef, she'll use kiwi in there to break it down. And it works really well. In fact, we've had it work too well before. So using like half of <laughs> actinidin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. That's, that's the name of the yeah. enzyme. Yeah. Actinidin. Yeah. I remember mm-hmm. that. I, well, I, I messed it up on a TV segment. <laughs> and so, you know, it's one of those things and like beat it into my brain. Yes. <laughs> I think I called it, I don't know. I called it something else, but it's actinidin. Yes. So, okay, cool. So hopefully that that kind of wraps your mind into this. Let's talk just maybe about like a composition dish. So I'll, I'll talk about one of my favorite summer salads. So I like to do a salad with mixed greens, um, especially if we're doing like carnitas or fish tacos. 
mixed greens. I like to do thinly sliced uh, jalapeno, which is going to be the spicy factor, right? I like to cut up avocado in there to add more fat. I like to make a salad dressing with olive oil, lime juice, lime zest, cumin, a little squirt of raw and filtered honey, uh, some quality real salt. Um, So I think I'm getting the acid fat. Cumin is going to be providing more. I think of it as such like a grounding seasoning, but where, where would you put that, Becky? In, in, a little in bit in here. like the spicy. No, it's not spicy. Maybe no, a little bit in the spicy sour. category. It's not sour either. Maybe a little spicy, yeah. a little bitter. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And then um, I like to add a fresh cilantro on that and then pickled onion to get more of that sour going. And I top that with. Uh, I can never say the word. How do you say the cheese? The crumbled cheese. Cojita. Cojita, Cojita. cheese. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a beautiful, colorful salad. And so you can, in the dressing, you know, we, we missed some of those flavor profiles, but then you can add them as toppings. So like the jalapeno added the spicy. I didn't have to add cayenne pinch into my dressing. Or the pickled onion added the sour. I didn't have to add that into my dressing. So you can do that within composition on your plate, within composition in your meal. And it's a really nice way to just, again, kind of allow different flavor profiles to sing and to use whole real foods that provide foodicinal, food as medicine benefit, right, without having to go for these processed products that are not going to work favorably for our metabolism or for whole body health, really, as far as inflammation and neurotransmitter health and so much more. And a version of that salad is coming in the anti-anxiety diet cookbook, but it goes really, really well with um, the carnitas recipe that's on the blog. Yes. Really any leftover protein protein, but because that has a little bit of a a Mexican twist, um, super nice as a base for that recipe, which also has a good blend of um, acid used in its cooking. Aren't we using um, lime juice and tequila in the braise of that? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's delicious. So awesome. I think we could go on forever and just keep talking food, but we'll save that for our relaunch of our YouTube channel and do all the fun things over there. So hopefully this sounds intriguing to you guys and you've come away with some bite-sized information about how you can be your own, like I said, culinary genius. Um, And the big picture is I want to empower you guys so that you don't get too rigid in recipe following because often it's like, oh, I want to make this dish, but I don't have that. So really thinking about the purpose on the ingredient in that plate, how that works with your palate and finding alternates that may be more nutritionally dense, right? But also provide a replacement if you just don't have something on hand for flexibility in your kitchen. Yes. So as always, if you loved this episode, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review along with a couple of sentences of why you loved the episode. And please share with friends and family who need a little bit of culinary inspiration. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.